Hello, everyone. It's uh, good to be here with you guys. Um, I want to just also welcome our uh, other campuses that will be gathering, and uh, we're glad to all be able to be together. It's kind of cool to be on a video together like that. Um, but uh, I, I just, I can't tell you what an honor it is for me to be standing here tonight. Um, a little over three years ago, I had never heard of a city called Greeley, Colorado. I had I'd never heard of it. I was a pastor of an evangelical free church in Northern California, doing my thing, living life, uh, serving the Lord. And then my family went through uh, the biggest crisis we have ever faced. Um, and it was a crisis that specifically threatened my marriage to my wife, Felicia. Um, and it required me to step away from ministry for a while. Um, and you probably aren't even aware of this, but from halfway across the country, uh, Christ Community Church was there for us. Um, through a program in our denomination called Recovery Church Ministry, it's a ministry that's designed to help pastors and their families who are going through crisis, um, intense brokenness and stuff like that. This church came alongside our family and was there for us and helped us relocate to Greeley, um, helped us get counseling um, to work through some stuff, helped us find a new source of income, um, and helped us just begin doing the hard work of putting the broken pieces of our world back together. Um, and we are incredibly grateful. And you know what's really cool? This is a crazy coincidence. Um, but today, my wife and I are celebrating our 17th wedding anniversary. Um, and if you consider where we were three years ago, it, it's, a really, it's a really exciting thing for me to be standing here right now. It just shows how faithful God is. Because me standing here is not only a testimony about how our God likes to take broken things and make them new again, but it's also a testimony to how he loves to use people um, in his story of redemption, like the people that, of this church. And so maybe someday I'll get to share more of our story with you, I don't know, but it's full of all kinds of different emotions. But for now, I just want to say thank you on behalf of me and my wife. I want to say thank you for um, being there for us. And I really, I truly am honored to be standing here with you today. So, um, that's, thank you. Um, so Jesus unexpected. Jesus unexpected, right? Over 30 years ago, uh, my dad graduated from seminary and took an internship with a church in Kearney, Nebraska, before he eventually became a, a pastor in Southern California, which is where I grew up. Um, and I was five when we moved to Kearney, so I don't remember a whole lot about it. Um, I know that I learned how to ride a bike in the uh, parking lot of our shady other side of the tracks apartment complex. I know that our shady neighbors in our shady apartment complex broke into our house and stole our TV only to invite us over to watch it with them later. And that is actually a true story. Um, I know that our family won a prize for having the longest tail on our kite on kite day because my dad kept tearing up an old sheet and tying it onto the end because we had to win something. Um, but all, of, all those memories are pretty fuzzy for me because it was a long time ago. But when I sat down um, to start thinking about this message, a vivid, like vivid memory came back to me from our time in Kearney when I was five years old. In the basement of our church, in some random corner, there was this really unique picture of Jesus. Um, and in the picture, Jesus had really dark hair, dark complexion. He had kind of dark brown eyes and a scraggly beard on his face. Um, 
and he had these broad shoulders on which he was carrying a lamb, and he was looking back at the lamb with this big smile. Um, and you could almost hear like the guttural laugh, like this strong guttural laugh coming out of his belly. And, and I remember the picture because my dad mentioned it to me one time in passing. And he said, he said, I love this picture of Jesus because it makes him look like a regular guy. He's strong and he's built like a man. He doesn't look all soft and weak, you know, with the pale white skin and the see-through blue eyes and the cute little halo around his head. Um, like so many other of the pictures that you see in churches and places. My dad said, he, he looks like a guy I could be friends with. Now, as an impressionable five-year-old boy who wanted to be just like his dad, that comment stuck with me, and it sank deeply into my heart. Um, I wanted to see Jesus like a real man, too. I wanted to see him as a real man, too. And I remember actually sneaking down into the basement all by myself on several different occasions just to stare at that picture and to look at it and, and to imagine myself that, that I was the lamb and Jesus was this big, strong, real guy and he was giving me a piggyback ride and he was playing with me and wrestling around with me. The picture just totally captured my imagination even when I was so small. And it's interesting, but I think that that picture had a bigger impact on me than I ever could have imagined. Because as I grew older and I learned more about Jesus and my understanding of, of who he was, it was filtered now by that picture, by the idea that Jesus was a real guy. He's not just some fake guy that's in the pictures and the storybooks. He's a real guy. Um, and that picture has helped me get past the the over-spiritualized versions of Jesus that I would see in Sunday school, and it allowed me to see him for the person that he really is and, 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 and know him more as a friend, as a person, as, a, as, a, as somebody that I could have a personal relationship with. And I bring up this story because it really gets the heart of what Jesus Unexpected is about. The way we view Jesus really matters. How we see him really matters for our lives. So many people have this European art museum picture of Jesus seared into their minds. And he's this soft, quiet, nice, kind of feminine-looking man who's always got his hands out. And he's inviting us to be his soft, quiet, nice followers. And if you're like me, that picture of Jesus just doesn't seem real. It, it doesn't connect with my heart. It doesn't create passion inside of me. That picture is not the kind of guy that I want to give my whole life for. The cool thing is, is that the Jesus that we see in the Bible is very different than those pictures. In fact, as we've seen in this series so far, you could go as far as to say that the Jesus of the Bible is almost nothing like those pictures. He's totally unexpected. And so what we're doing is in this series, we're attempting to slow down and stop for a minute in the, in the craziness of life and, and get past maybe all of our preconceived notions to catch a glimpse of the real Jesus so that we can follow him, so that our hearts can be ignited with passion and excitement, and we can follow him in a genuine kind of way. And today, we're in uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 23. So if you have your Bible with you or your phone or whatever it is that you use, you can turn there so you can follow along. There will be some... Uh, of the verses projected on the screen. Um, 
But this passage offers another radical picture of Jesus through the story of John the Baptist and then Jesus' baptism. And the story is pretty intense, especially when you hear the content of John's message to the people. And so what I want to do, all I really want to do today is walk through the story, and I want to pay attention to what John says about the real Jesus. And along the way, I want to point out two life-giving truths, two truths that have the power to reshape our thinking about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, two truths that have the potential to ignite our passion and, and our desire for him. I, I want us to see him and go, yeah, that's who I want to follow. That's who I am following. Is everybody kind of with me, looking for those two truths? All right. So I want to start by setting the scene of the story. Okay, at the beginning of chapter 3, Luke hits the fast forward button 18 years. All right. The last part of chapter 2 is the story of the preteen middle school Jesus that Pastor Alan talked about last, last week. Um, and he's there, and he's in the temple, and he's raising some eyebrows, and these guys are like amazed at him. And he kind of gets in trouble with his parents because he's like, where were you? And that whole thing. And so that story ends, and Luke 2.52 comes up, and it simply says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, I don't know about you, but that verse is kind of a letdown for me. A little bit of a letdown. I'm bummed that Luke and all the other writers skipped over so much of Jesus' early life, right? I, 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 want, I want some stories of like seven-year-old Jesus falling down and skinning his knee and what that looked like. I, I, want some, I want to see how he related with his peers at Hebrew school. I want to hear about how the teenage Jesus handled it when a girl had a crush on him and was kind of chasing him. I, I want to see, I want to get a peek into the woodworking shop where he's hanging out with Joseph and they're building stuff together and what kind of carpenter he was. I want to know what his relationship was like with his dad. I want to know what his relationship was like with his mom. I want to hear the story of him taking over the family business. Right? I, I just, I feel like we're, I just want, I want to see that stuff. It would be so cool. And the gospel writers just, they just don't go there. And I, and I don't know why, but they just don't. And maybe we're going to get, I, I'm going to get some of those stories in heaven. I'm, I'm going to find out. I want to see, I want to see, maybe they'll have like a cool movie of Jesus' life so we can see what happened during that time. But Luke jumps from Jesus' bar mitzvah at age 12 um, all the way to his baptism at 30. So there's a lot of space in there. And we know this because like the good historian that Luke is, Luke opens up chapter 3 with this long list of all the rulers and officials who were in power at the time that Jesus came forward to be baptized and begin his earthly ministry. And, you know, it's interesting. It's these verses. A lot of Luke's verses um, are, the, are the verses that scholars use to figure out, like, the events of Jesus' life and when he was born and how old he was when he started and when he died and all that kind of stuff. They, they use that to figure it all out. So if you're a history buff, it's super fascinating. But chapter 3 is basically the story of the launch of Jesus' earthly ministry. Okay? And Luke opens this story with a totally unexpected message from an unexpected messenger. And the messenger is Jesus' cousin, John. We know him today as John the Baptist. I don't think anybody called him back, that back then, but we know him that, by that now. And so you got to picture this guy, John, with me. Um, and, and the way that, because the way that his ministry gets going um, and the way he breaks onto the scene as a public figure is very mysterious. All right, 
For the last few years, John has been hiding in, out in the desert, and he's kind of a wild man. Um, he's eating, he eats bugs and wild honey, and he's wearing camel skin clothes, and he's got hair out of control all over his face. And to be honest with you, when I picture John in my mind, now that I've been at this church, minus the gauges, I see Pastor KJ. I don't think he's going to be here this, this weekend, so don't tell him I said that. But um, I, I don't know. For some reason, that's what I see. I can, I can imagine him out there by the Jordan River bringing it, right? Um, so, so to me, that's John. Now, John all of a sudden shows up from out of nowhere, and he just kind of appears by the Jordan River, and every day he's out there, and he's yelling at people to repent of their sins. I mean, that's kind of the, the basic essence of his message. And all of these people start coming out to him in droves to hear him yell at them about repenting of their sins. And I'm sitting there thinking, why? What's the draw here? You know, John is, the, John is that deranged sidewalk prophet guy that stands outside of the festivals yelling at people about the end of the world. We go to the other side of the street for that guy, right? We try to avoid him. We run away from him. But in Jesus' day... All these people are running out to hear what John has to say. Excitement is in the air. He's drawing large crowds. It's very unexpected. And then, when you hear the content of his message, it's almost shocking that he had any kind of following at all. Look at what he says to the people who come out to hear him, starting in verse 7. Follow along with me as I read. It'll be up on the screen. Oh, no, it won't. I, I'll read it for you. <laughs> John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, right? There's a message that I'm just running out to hear. Say that to me again. I mean, do you hear what John is saying to these people? He opens with, you bunch of snakes. Imagine like Hillary Clinton or Marco Rubio beginning one of their camp spe campaign speeches with you bunch of snakes. There goes the presidency. And then he's like, what do you think you're doing here listening to a sermon on salvation? Who bothered to tell you about it? You don't deserve a warning against the coming wrath. I mean, it's almost like he's chasing them away. And then he's like, you are a mess, and it's time to confess and own up to your sin. It's time to plead guilty. And we all know in our culture, everybody loves to plead guilty. Then he hits them right where it hurts. Don't you dare think. He says, don't you dare think. You have some right to salvation just because you're a Hebrew. Your precious title, people of God, worthless. It would be just as good as we called those rocks over there the people of God. It means nothing. Now think about it for a second. For a people 
for who 2,000 years, 2,000 years, their entire identity is based on the fact that they are God's chosen people and that he's going to come back and redeem them. He's going to come back and save them. And, and they've got this, that's their coin. That's their, that's their, their thing they're going to cash out with someday. That's the thing that's getting them through all the oppression they've faced. These are fighting words John's bringing to them. Right? But John just keeps going. He says, in fact, it's actually kind of the opposite. The God of Abraham has pulled his, out his axe. And he's ready to start chopping down all the worthless trees and branches to be thrown into the fire. And he's fine with taking down the whole tree if he has to, because he has others. Pretty intense, huh? Powerful, unexpected. The thing that's interesting to me about this is that this is the message that God chose to be delivered as a precursor to Jesus coming onto the scene. This is the message that he had for his people bef right before Jesus came. Radical things are about to happen when Jesus comes, and it's time for people to get ready. Here's the reality. The arrival of Jesus is more often, it's more than what we often think. It's not simply some pacifist movement of peace. It's not, he didn't come here just to encourage people to be nicer to each other. When Jesus came, he came to wage a war. He came to overthrow the power of sin and death, to crush his enemies under his feet. He came with an axe to do a little pruning to create an, a clear division between those people who are his and those who are not. I mean, he was here to extract out a people for himself that were to share in his glory with him forever. And yes, we're all invited to share in that glory, but it's pretty clear not everyone is going to be found in him on the last day when he restores perfect peace once and for all. I mean, John says... The axe is already at the root of the tree, and some trees will not be allowed to continue to stand. And, he, and John goes even further to delineate this division in verse 17. Look at, look at what it says in verse 17. It says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Here John is comparing Jesus to a farmer with this big pitchfork, sorting out the good part of the crop from the bad, and the good parts going into the barns, and the bad parts getting burned up. It is an intense message of fierce division, demanding people to evaluate where they stand. This is the message that God chose to speak right before Jesus came on the scene. Now, I want to be clear about something. John's message is not meant to create guilt or shame. And it's not meant to scare people into doing whatever they have to do. i got to get right before God so I don't, don't get thrown in the unquenchable fire. Okay, so please don't hear me saying that. But this message is meant to inspire a certain amount of holy fear. Reverence leading to repentance. And can we be honest with ourselves for a second? Just like John lit up the Hebrew people in those days because they believed they somehow deserved 
to be rescued by God because they were the chosen ones? Sometimes I think we need it too. We need to be lit up just a little bit. Yeah, as followers of Jesus, we, have, we should have confidence as children of the Most High God. He has adopted us as his sons and daughters. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God with the, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can live in assurance with all those promises, but at the same time, we are called to live our lives with a deep sense of humility. Never taking for granted the cost of the life we have been given. We are called to daily work out our salvation with just a little bit of fear and a little bit of trembling. Because you see, it's an ugly thing anytime someone gets the idea in their head that they somehow deserve salvation or that it can be earned or that we're born into it. It's called self-righteousness, being good enough on your own. And Pastor Allen talks about this misconception all the time. We live in a world where people, Christian and non-Christian alike, are constantly trying to justify themselves through some notion of good deeds. You know, some people do it by, by going to church, and I go to church, and so I, I'm, I'm a good person. Or some people try to manage their behavior. I don't cuss too much, and I don't drink too much. Or some people try to do it by volunteering and serving others and giving to less, the less fortunate. And we all have, we all have different notions of what it means to be a good person. Whatever our thing is, we try really hard to do it so we can somehow say, see God, see, look, uh, I'm pretty good, right? And John is like, no, you're not. You're just, you're just not. See, as, as a precursor to Jesus, John preaches this fierce message of repentance that begs the question, when will I stop all of this self-justification? When will I stop and simply repent and, and, and plead guilty and fall desperately before a holy God, recognizing that I, I am deserving of his wrath? I have participated in the devastation of the sin in this world. At what point do I stop trying to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and wave the white flag and just admit, I, I don't even deserve the life that I have in Jesus. And it's actually the first life-giving truth that we can take away from this message. Being desperate before God is a good place to be. Being desperate before God is a good place to be. You want to know why? Because it makes us ready to receive Jesus. It makes us ready to receive him for all that he is. When we're desperate for God, we're ready for Jesus to come in and have his way in our lives. And that was John the Baptist's entire role in God's plan for redemption. He sent him ahead of Jesus to get people ready for the Messiah to come. And Luke quotes Isaiah the prophet in verses 4 through 6 describing John's role. And you can read it for yourself sometime, but it just basically says, John is a voice calling out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. John, is, he was called to straighten paths and lower mountains and raise up valleys. If you can imagine the rocky mountains getting crushed down and the eastern plains being brought up. 
raising up the valleys and smoothing out bumpy roads with the promise that all mankind, all mankind will have the opportunity to see God's salvation. Everyone on an even playing playing field before our holy God. That was John's role, to get to prepare everybody to be able to see. And now, of course, we are on the other side of John the Baptist and the other side of the cross or the other side of the resurrection. But you know what? I think Jesus still wants to do radical things in our lives. And the question is, are we ready? Are we ready for him to have his way? What obstacles need to be cleared out of the way so that he can have his way in you? What paths need to be straightened? What mountains need to be lowered? I don't know about you, but I want to find the answers to those questions because I want him to have full reign in me. I don't want to miss out on any of the resurrection kind of life he has to offer. I want the full uninhibited view of salvation. You know what's cool? That's exact, like, that's the exact heart of, of the people that were at John's audience that day when he preached this message. To me, that's totally unexpected because he hits them as hard as he can right where it hurts. And instead of getting angry and hard, they miraculously soften and plead with John. They say, what then shall we do? What then shall we do? What then shall we do? They say it three times. It's not just the good God-fearing Jews either. The thieving tax collectors beg John to help them. Um, the pagan soldiers who have aligned themselves with the, with the ungodly Roman Empire, they come forward and they want to know what they can do. And it's interesting to notice that John's command to them, when he answers them, he doesn't tell them to go through like a whole bunch of rig- religious practices and, well, get down there, it's almost Passover, get down there and, you know, do your sacrifices in the temple and then you'll be okay. He simply challenges each person to evaluate how they treat others. That's all he does. To the God-fearing Jewish crowd, he tells them, live generously. You got two tunics? Give it to somebody who doesn't have one. Give to those in need. To the tax collectors, he simply tells them, stop ripping people off. Be honest in your trade. And to the soldiers, he commands them not to use their power to take advantage of other people. It's always been true, hasn't it, that loving God is directly connected to loving people. Now, at this point in the story, the crowd is so fired up. I don't know why, but they are. They are fired up. And they're ready to make John their Messiah. Okay? Verse 15 says, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. Like, is this him? They're like whispering to each other. Is, is this him? Do you think it's him? Could he be here? He's going to rescue us. All right, we're going. All right, he can say whatever he wants to me. Okay? But John quickly shuts that notion down. He says in verse 16, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose, of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's like, don't settle for me as the Messiah. 
The one who's coming is totally unexpected. I throw water on you as some sort of an outward symbol of some sort of cleansing. But the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what John is talking about right there is that when this Messiah comes um, and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, he's referring to what happens when someone surrenders their life to Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and transforms that person's heart. Okay? It's a spiritual baptism with fire. And fire here symbol, uh, symbolizes two things, purification and power. Okay? Um, like, the, like refining fire, right? He, he comes to burn away the sin and excess mess of your life. And his fire will clean you out so you never have to be cleaned again. Right? That's the fire. But the fire also re- represents this raw power because the Holy Spirit is entering into the life of a believer and it ignites their heart with this unadulterated power. The very power of the Spirit of God is living in me because I've been baptized. I've, been, I've entered into Jesus. That's the kind of Messiah these people should be expecting. And John's like, don't pick me, I'm JV. I'm JV. It, it reminds me of when I go out, and, out to the blacktop to play basketball with my middle school students. Because, like, I'm an okay basketball player. I played in high school, and I've done a whole bunch of coaching. So when I go out there with them, I look, like, I look really good. Like, I'm balling them up, and I'm knocking them over, and I'm rebounding and making the basket and stuff like that. And so, so all, these, all these 12-year-olds, they'll come up to me afterwards, and they'll be like, Mr. Brower, why didn't you ever play in the NBA? I'm like... Are you, I kind of laugh. I'm like, look at me. Are you serious? Um, you don't even know what you're saying. Those guys are on a whole different level. They're bigger. They're stronger. They're faster. They can do things that I have never even imagined doing. If I tried my hardest, they're literally a thousand times better than I could ever be. We're not in the same conversation. Friends, the Messiah who has come to our world has, is totally unexpected. And the Jewish people knew that he would come with authority and power, but their expectation of who he would be and what he would want to do was really limited. It was limited. And sometimes the same is true for us. We put limits on Jesus, don't we? We put limits on him. We lower our expectations of him and don't expect him to do too much. You know, we know he can help us with our struggling marriage, but We don't expect him to raise our broken marriage from the dead and revive it with resurrection kind of life. You know, we ask him, you know, we pray and we we ask him, help help our kids grow up to be good people. But do we expect that he actually has this plan for their lives and he's working it out right now and he is moving inside their hearts to make them all they were created to be? Do we just expect that, that he's got it? We ask him to have his way with us at work. You know, use me in the lives of my neighbors or my friends or the people that I work with. But do we expect him to move inside of us, fill us up with the Holy Spirit, prepare us to speak truth right into somebody's life in the middle of a regular everyday life situation? Do we expect him to use us like that? When we we ask him to help us with our aches and pains and sicknesses, but we don't expect him to restore full and vibrant health to our bodies in the face of a life-threatening disease. I I struggle with that one a lot. I'm like almost afraid that 
to pray for, for like full healing for some reason. But it's so much bigger than that. Our Messiah is totally unexpected. And he didn't just come to overthrow some piddly Roman Empire that he knew would eventually overthrow itself. Like he was like, that's not my business. Th that'll work itself out. He didn't just come down to try to help us be nicer or to help us live happier lives or to make this world a better place. He came to begin the process of overthrowing the kingdom of darkness. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, to set captives free, to restore sight to the blind. He came to, like I said before, extract that people for himself that will be totally transformed and restored in his image, experiencing all resurrection life. He came to begin the process of dismantling this world so that he can set up a new heaven and a new earth in which his people will live forever. That's our Messiah. That's the man we're following. Amen. And he's looking for people who are ready to be empowered by his Holy Spirit. People who fully surrender their lives to him so that he can have his way in them. It's the second life-giving truth to take away from this message. Jesus wants to have his way in me. Jesus wants to have his way in me. And so the question is, what do we do with this Jesus? Whether you consider yourself his follower already, or you're just questioning and seeking and thinking about what that would mean, the invitation, I think, is exactly the same. You're invited to go deeper into understanding who Jesus is. You're invited to experience the goodness of a little bit of desperation, knowing how much you need him. You're invited to have Jesus come in and clean out the mess with his fire, the mess that gets clogged up in our hearts. You're invited to know the power of having his spirit living inside you, enabling you to live out all that you were created to be, filling up every part of your life. You're invited to remove the limits of what you thought was possible and to expect the unexpected, to invite him to come and do more than you could have ever asked or imagined. But what does that look like? What does it look like to go deeper from where you are right now? And as we transition from this message in, into a time of worship, I want us to have a chance of reflecting on what going deeper means for us as individuals. And I want to do that by looking at the last uh, three verses um, in Luke 3, verses 21 through 23, which tells the story of Jesus' baptism. And Luke relates the story with very simple language. He simply says, when the people were being baptized... Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying and heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The, the significance of this story to me is pretty straightforward. Obviously Jesus is not there to repent. He's not getting ba a baptism of repentance like everybody else was because he doesn't have any sins to repent of. So, this baptism is simply an inauguration ceremony of the beginning of his ministry, right? He stepped forward before God, his father, to say that he's ready. 
This was an expression of the fact that it is now time for him to step into his role as the Messiah. It's time for him to initiate events that would lead to the salvation of the world. I mean, this is the beginning of his journey towards the cross, right? Where he would square off against the power of sin and death and create a way for anyone and everyone to experience resurrection life. So that's what his baptism is about. But what I want us to do is is use the story of his baptism to identify where we are currently at in our relationship with Jesus and think about what it would mean for each one of us to go a little deeper. And so to do that, I want everybody right now just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to paint a picture of what it was like that day. I want you to imagine being at the Jordan River. Right? You're, you're standing among this intensely curious crowd, and, and there's excitement in the air, and this crazy-looking wild man is proclaiming a radical kind of truth, the likes of which you've never heard before. People are going forward and getting baptized, and there's this, there's this excitement that's in the air. Then all of a sudden, everything just stops. A silence falls over the crowd as a young man of about 30 steps forward to be baptized. No one knows exactly who he is, but there's an undeniable air about him. You can feel something totally unexpected is about to happen. You kind of look over at John and you see John himself. He freezes too. And he hesitates. He's not sure what he should do. You can look into his eyes and you can see he just wants to fall down and worship, but somehow he holds himself together enough to lead the man out in the water and baptize him. And you watch the man as he goes down under the water. And then John brings him up, and the man starts to pray. You can see his lips moving. He's, he's far enough away that maybe you can't make out the words that he's saying, but you strain to hear because there's something in your heart that is drawn to know this man. Then, All of a sudden, the sky itself is ripped apart like the seam of a delicate piece of cloth, and you're standing there, and heaven is opened up, and you're caught off guard and stunned. Something inside you, as you're looking up, and there's screams, avert your eyes. You can't look, but you also can't look away. You're captured by the glory on display. It's as if eternal heaven has just penetrated into finite time and space. And you're you're staring through this brilliance. And you see a dove floating down and alighting on the man as he prays. And then it's as if all that's not enough. All of a sudden, a voice rumbles from the sky, mighty like thunder, yet crisp and clean and smooth in your ears. And your knees feel weak as you hear this voice speak directly to the young man as he prays. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. being there to experience it. And I think similar to people who are actually there, for us there are, there are three types of responses to that divine moment. Right? Some people, th- the first response is you could simply walk away. And that's an option, and many people took that option that day. Right? 
And I can't imagine them leaving without at least being buzzed by a supernatural encounter. And can you imagine the conversations they had with their friends on the way home? And wow, that was neat. I've never seen anything like that before. And that might be you right now. You're still figuring out all of this Jesus guy stuff. And this is just another step in you going a little bit deeper, wondering what all of this means. For you, maybe deeper is just asking the question, is there more to this Jesus guy than I originally thought? And you're not, maybe not going to make a decision yet about it, but, but maybe you could pray a prayer. Jesus, if that really happened, if you're really real, if you're a real guy, like Luke's saying up there, please show yourself to me. Now, a second response would be that you want to hang around and find out more. You know, while the rest of the crowd gathers their things and leaves, there's a few others that were just drawn forward. They just, they had to know, you, you have more questions. You can't wait for another time. You feel a deep sense of desperation. You're ready to repent. You want to experience the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You want his fire cleaning you out from the inside out right now. And so for you, going deeper means maybe getting up during worship and finding one of the prayer counselors that's going to be on the side and going over to them and asking them some questions and having them pray with you and having them show you how to ask Jesus to have his way in your life. And you know, if finding a prayer counselor doesn't feel comfortable to you or something like that, maybe you can find me or or Phil or one of the other pastors after the service, or maybe even the friend that invited you to come tonight. But for you, you want to go deeper now. Don't leave without talking to somebody. Now, the third response is for those of you who have already given your lives to Jesus. And, and maybe as you think about that day, you're hungry to experience a little more. Maybe you've limited his power in your life in some way. And you're afraid of something that you don't need to be afraid of or there's something that's getting in the way and it's time for you to knock down some barriers that are preventing you from fully experiencing him. Maybe you have been enjoying his power unhindered and you're ready to dive in a little further into the recesses of Jesus. Just like you're ready to go deeper. Either way, deeper for you looks like asking Jesus to reignite or fan the flame of his fire in your heart so you can taste just a little bit more, maybe getting back to where you once were. Friends, in the same way that, that John's message called people to be ready for the Messiah when he comes, the same message is now calling you to be aware that he is here and wants you to experience full and complete life in him. Let me pray. Jesus, you are amazing. You are God, but you didn't stay far away. You came down and entered in so that we could know you in a personal way. And you coming here reveals the fact that there's brokenness in our lives and, and stuff that we might need to repent of and, and revealing our desperation. You came here because you want to have your way in our lives. Because you want us to experience your kind of life. And I pray for the people in this room. And I pray for myself 
that you would use this message to take us deeper into who you are, to ignite that flame, to bring our hearts to life, to experience you more, to open ourselves up further. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Thank you for wanting us to know you. Thank you for making a way for that to be possible. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. I invite you to stand with us and let's worship God together through song.